0: Hello, and welcome to the City Church Evansville podcast. My name is Sean Little, and I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City. For the next two weeks, I'm preaching through a series entitled Surface and Substance. As some of my last sermons here at City, they're a little different from our usual expositional approach. I've thought long and hard about what I want to share as I prepare to depart, and here's my concern. Most of evangelical Christianity floats on the surface of a vast ocean of substance. While we're sincere in our beliefs, I think we need to be thinking about discussing and understanding the substance of the following three issues. So as I think about the final sermons that I'll preach here at City after years of having the honor to work on staff, I want to suggest three things that I think we need to be thinking about discussing And understanding beyond the surface, here they are, culture, technology, and sex. My wife told me this morning, you need to give people a heads up that you're going to be talking about sex. So here's your heads up. I'm going to be talking about sex. First, we'll deal with culture. Here's a pretty thorough definition that I'll share so that we're all on the same page. We'll bring it up on the screen here. Culture refers to the cumulative knowledge, experience, beliefs, values, attitudes, meanings, hierarchies, religion, notions of time, roles, spatial relations, concepts of the universe, and material objects and possessions acquired by a group of people in the course of generations through individual and group striving. That's a big definition, but I think we all need to grasp it to understand what I'm going to be talking about here. America has long been referred to as the melting pot. The idea was popularized by a 1908 play with that title, the melting pot. So for more than 100 years, Americans have been familiar with the idea that to be American means to essentially lose one's individual heterogeneous culture in order to adopt a homogenous culture. The idea is to exchange uh, your loyalty to, even familiarity with, your native, ethnic, religious identity in favor of sort of a whitewashed, Americanized, the culture. When we think about culture, and ours specifically, and understand what it means to be American as part of the melting pot, It begs the question, who are we as Americanized Christians? Are we aware of our culture? Do we even have a culture? There's a nearly famous passage from the book of Acts, and you guys can turn to Acts chapter 2, and I'll join you there in a minute, that highlights the importance and sustainability of culture. Many of you will recognize these words towards the end of the book of Acts, or I'm sorry, chapter 2. They're at verse 44. It's a quick little phrase that goes like this. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. I've heard this verse used to compel Christians uh, into unity. People will say, This is what the church looked like when the church was initially becoming the church. So since that's what the church was like, this is what the church should be like. Now be together and have everything in common. Has anyone heard that verse used along those lines? My wife is the only one. Maybe because she heard me practicing this earlier. (laughs) But that's really a surface level understanding or misunderstanding of this text and most specifically the culture of the people that this text is describing. As we see throughout the second chapter of Acts, uh, Acts 2 verse 1, it's the day of Pentecost, which is the Jewish Shabbat. Verse 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout, devout men from every nation. Verses 9 through 11 give sort of an exhaustive list of where these Jews and converts to Judaism are from. What nations, what countries they're from. Then in verse 22 and 29, we see this phrase repeated, men of Israel or fellow Israelites. <clears throat> this brings us full circle to where we arrive at Acts two forty-four: All the believers were together and had everything in common. It's worth noting that all of these believers are Jews or converts to Judaism. They're devout Jewish men who have traveled from many countries and gathered in Jerusalem for essentially what's a a Jewish holiday. They're at Pentecost or Shabbat. They believed in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Jewish Messiah. And so these are the men who were together and had everything in common. What I want you to see from that is that they're able to, to have everything in common because they share the same culture. That's so important. You guys see that? You dig what I'm saying? It's certainly not to say that God didn't work miraculously among them because he did. At Pentecost, there was a unique outpouring of the Holy Spirit to where the apostles communicated the gospel to all of those nations and the tongue of those nations. But nonetheless, they communicated to Jewish men who shared the same Culture is them. They're unified through a culture that includes the elements of that definition that I put up there before. A culture that's deeply informed throughout time with, and get this, immense amounts of substance substance that is incredibly binding. So as you look throughout the history of the Jewish people and you see the atrocities that they've experienced, being displaced, being murdered by the millions, but they can still remain together because of what? Their binding culture. Does that make sense? In contrast, as American evangelical Christians, I think our culture floats on the surface of substance, which in part is why there are so many Christian denominations. Is that just confusing to anyone? All the signs with the extended titles of the churches, what does it all mean? Without a binding culture, we as Protestants, again, non-Catholic Christians, have been left to the tides of interpretation. Listen to this passage from uh, the Benedict Option. Rod Dreher here is talking about uh, what happened at the Reformation in Catholic Christian Europe. There was a single church, Christian church, up to this point. Dreyer says, though there was a great deal of local diversity across Catholic Europe, fidelity to the Roman Catholic institution and its authority to proclaim objective religious truth had been a unifying principle. The Reformation destroyed that unity and stripped those under its sway of many symbols, rituals, and concepts, culture that had structured the inner lives of Christians. Reformation era Christians, Protestants, would no longer bow before what the Reformers believed to be superstition and idolatry. Scripture was their only authority in religious matters, to which good Protestants say, Amen. Amen. The question immediately arose, whose interpretation of Scripture? No reformer believed in private interpretations of Scripture, but they had no clear way to discern whose interpretation was the correct one. The reformers quickly discovered that casting off Rome's authority solved one problem, but created another. This is why I say we've been left to the tides of interpretation. And when interpretation is disagreed upon, churches split. That rhythm was established in the early 1500s. And over the past 500 years, it's continued. And today, there are 10,000 Protestant denominations. 10,000 plus one non-denominational church, which is what we are. 10,000. We must take seriously the need to create and cultivate a binding culture. One that exists beyond the surface of politics and socioeconomics and things associated with the kingdom of this world. We need to create and cultivate a culture that can sustain us even through persecution. One where we can be together and have everything in common. A culture concerned beyond the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of God. Now, let me say one more thing before we move on uh, to my second consideration. I have one more comment, and it specifically relates to culture and my fellow millennials. People that were born sort of from the early 80s to the late 90s, early 2000s. For the folks born before that, the most annoying people in your life. I want to talk about them briefly. So if you're a millennial, I encourage you to listen up. And if there's a millennial in your life, whether a coworker, daughter, son-in-law, friend, whatever, listen up as well. We've been talking about the importance of building culture, a binding culture. Creating that kind of culture can seem impossible, especially if you have to include millennials. I'm not sticking up for them because a lot of the labels are true, irresponsible and self-consumed and entitled. I affirm much of that. Not about me, about them. I do want you to think about, though, the world that they've inherited and the world that they've grown up in. Think about major social institutions such as family and business. Family. Divorce rates skyrocketed from the early 70s. They peaked in the early 80s and they continued throughout the 90s. And while divorce has been so normalized in our culture that we sort of brush it to the side... I want you to see that the children who grew up in these families, millennials, have experienced the implosion of family. My wife and I got married almost nine years ago. Family in her mind was an entity that did not include divorce. No one in her family had been divorced. Family in my mind included an entity where no one stayed married. I'm one of those kids who has experienced the implosion of family. Many millennials are like that. Family is one of the most important social and cultural institutions, and it has collapsed in the era that my people have been born and bred. Also, beginning in the 70s, there's a fascinating book called The Disposable American. Corporations instituted layoffs as a way to drive short-term profit. So before the 70s, corporations and employees sort of shared a, a marriage. You could get a gig at one place and stay there until you retire. But to drive short-term profits, layoffs became normalized. So the American social and cultural institution of the corporation also collapsed, creating immense material and psychological chaos in the lives of the adult Americans who were in those systems and raising kids in the 70s the 80s and 90s, the millennials. Millennials have grown up in an American culture where the family has collapsed. Corporations have collapsed. Banks collapsed after manipulating the market and destroying 40% of global wealth. That's another story. Nothing seems stable to millennials. That's why we don't commit to anything. That's why we're terrified to commit to anything. Family is not stable. Corporations are not stable. Government is not stable. Banks are not stable. And the millennials come in the church, and the church wants to wonder why they don't want to commit to the church. They don't commit to anything because the world they grew up in collapsed. So in fundamental ways, millennials have grown up amidst the social and cultural collapse and disorder. And in short, millennial culture has become consumerism. Since we can't trust any of those institutions, you know what we can trust? Eastland Mall, Amazon Prime, Apple, and Nike, and other brands that I think take advantage of that need that we have to give us a sense of belonging and identity. Even if we're buying those things with money that we don't have at a 20% interest rate, we can belong somewhere. Our culture has become consumerism. This brings me to the second thing that I think we have to be thinking about and discussing and understanding well beyond the surface, deep into its substance and its technology. Uh, Over the past few years, you guys have probably heard me reference an author that I kind of got a man crush on. His name is Neil Postman. Hugely influential in my life. He was a 20th century media ecologist in that he studied the effects of mediated technology on society. In the introduction to his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, published in 1985, before the internet. Listen to some of this stuff. Postman's contrasting George Orwell, the author of 1984, and Aldous Huxley author of Brave New World, will put up Postman's introduction, but this is from Amusing Ourselves to Death. Thinking about the relationship between technology and society. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there'd be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture, whereas Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. As Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, people fail to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. This is before the internet. In 1984, people were controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they're controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we fear will ruin us. Huxley feared that we will desi- what we desire will ruin us. I'm already going to go long, so I'm not going to spend more time on this whole quote. But let me pull out one part of it. The truth would be drowned... In a sea of irrelevance. Now let me share a few figures with you. Okay. On average around 6,000 tweets are tweeted on Twitter per second. That translates to 350,000 tweets per minute. 500 million tweets per day. 200 billion tweets per year. In 2010, which is like a technological lifetime ago, Eric Schmidt, then CEO of Google, said, we create as much information in two days now as we did from the dawn of man through 2003. Every two days, we create so much content that matches the beginning of society to 2003. And look, I agree that a lot of it is like YouTube videos and cat memes, I get that, but... Stick with what I'm saying. The truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. With Twitter on our mind now, let's think about the Bible, sort of the cornerstone of the Protestant church. Scholars estimate that the oldest parts of the Old Testament were written in 1400 BC. The newest parts of the Old Testament written By about 450 B.C. The entirety of the New Testament. Was complete before the year 100. The whole of the record of the revelation of God. Was composed between 1400 B.C. And the year 100. Nothing has been added to it since. And 2,000 years have passed. And in contrast. In the last minute that it took me to explain that. 350,000 tweets. Have been sent. The truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Do we sense that is happening? Do we sense that that has already happened? Past tense? I'm connected to so many Christians, you know, who like do it for the gram all day. They post statuses and updates, videos and pictures. They check in and they retweet, they scroll and they like, and then they tell me, I don't have time to read the Bible loved ones. It's not about time. We make time for whatever we find to be valuable. The fact of the matter is that what Postman said about Huxley has become true. The truth has been drowned in a sea of irrelevance. And to summarize all of it, and we'll put this up on the screen, we value information more than revelation. At some point, there was a transaction. And even for the church, We value all of that crap that comes at us incessantly all the time, every single day, as opposed to the revelation of God's Word. People know hashtags. They know what's trending. They know what products are releasing. They know what's going on in the relationships, marriages, and divorces of celebrities. But they don't know the tenets of their own faith systems, their own belief. They don't invest in their spiritual well-being. And according to Jeff... Uh, at City Church, folks come 1.8 times per month. And when the Pew Research Center conducts a survey, they find that the American public and the Protestant population know the same amount of information in regards to the Christian faith. Technology is not all bad. Technology has ushered in a great amount of good into the human experience. But again, truth has been drowned out by a sea of irrelevance. And as a consequence, I think much of evangelical Christianity floats on the surface of substance. The priority and value of revelation, God's revelation to mankind, must take the place of the emphasis that we place on information. Listen to a survey of what you find throughout the scriptures about God's revelation. This is all in my sermon notes on the app. It's going to be up here. It's going to feel like you're drinking from a fire hose. But listen to this. In Deuteronomy, Moses was told by God that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Isaiah wrote that the grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. A young man named Timothy, loved and trained by the apostle Paul, says that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Listen to all those uses. What is the use of all of the information that we consume all day? It's useless. And then lastly, the writer of the Hebrews, writing to Jewish men and women who had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrates even a dividing soul and spirit, joints, and marrow judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. So what does all of that mean? I think I might still be young enough and seemingly cool where you guys don't just tune me out on this. Here's what it means. Read your Bible. Read the history of the church and the history of Christianity. Understand your roots, your lineage, your history. Understand your culture. Explore the story of the people of God. Invest in God. Enjoy God and understand the substance of your beliefs lest truth will continue to be drowned out by a sea of irrelevance. Okay, as I said, my concern is most of evangelical Christianity floats on the surface of substance. As I prepare to leave my leadership role here at City Church, there are a few things that I think we need to be thinking about discussing and understanding more deeply. I mentioned the need to create and cultivate a binding culture. The need to understand the influence of mediated technology, namely that it's drowned out truth in a sea of irrelevance. And thirdly, I think we need to begin thinking about discussing and increasing our understanding of sex. This should be good. I think I run the risk of being tuned out here because so much of what the church has said about sexuality, frankly, has been insufficient. Again, floating on the surface of substance. Toward the end of Dreyer's book, The Benedict Option, he writes clearly and compellingly about Christianity and sex. More specifically, the influence of the sexual revolution upon modern Christianity. To clarify, uh, and look, stick with me, all right? You guys know me. You love me. I know you and love you. I'm going to come around, all right? Stick with me. To clarify, I think that homosexuality and gay marriage have been unfairly focused on in regards to sexuality and sin. Not only by the church, and I'm going to talk about the church in a second, but also by the secular mainstream. I think that the secular mainstream has grabbed onto homosexuality and gay marriage and used it primarily to increase the brand awareness and to sell crap. Now I want to talk about the church. I think the majority of the church's focus has far more to do with cultural norms, social preferences, and political power, and far less to do with anything that we find in the Bible. I just say that from the jump because Dreher is going to mention homosexuality and gay marriage in the quote that I'll share, but I want you to stick with me because he has a larger point and so do I. Here we go. Scherer says, Americans accepted gay marriage so quickly because it resonated with what they had already come to believe about the meaning of heterosexual sex and marriage. We have gay marriage because the straight majority came to see sexuality as something primarily for pleasure and self-expression. We have gay marriage because the straight majority came to see marriage in the same way, a means of pleasure and self-expression. To be modern, and this one's going to come home for all of us, is to believe in one's individual desires as the locus of authority and self-definition. That's sort of the MO for all modern people. We think that we are our own authority and we self-define. It seems that Dreyer is pointing the finger at the heterosexual majority and their beliefs, ideas, and practices regarding sex For the normalization and acceptance of homosexuality, which led to the legalization of gay marriage. And to a certain extent, I'd just like to point that finger right down on us this morning. What are our ideas, beliefs, and practices about sex? Not your neighbors, yours. What are they? How many of the Christians hearing this now have viewed pornography in the last week? How many non-married Christians have had sex recently, and I'm not only talking about intercourse. How many married Christians have had sex outside of their marriage, or flirted with the idea of doing so, or maybe opening up their marriages. And how many Christians have left marriages not out of necessity, but because you came to see marriage as primarily for pleasure or self-expression. My intention isn't to guilt or shame anyone. And if you don't know me, you just got to give me some trust. Guilt and shame are inconsistent with the character of God and the good news of the gospel. But let me remind all of you, especially those of you who are Christian, heterosexual Christians, what the scripture says about marriage and sex. We'll put it up on the screen here. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all of the sexually immoral. To clarify, that's where some of you are going to come back around and then not send me an email this week. I hold the orthodox Christian belief that homosexuality is sin. Not only opposed to the reality and design of God, but antithetical to human flourishing and thriving. But I'm coming to realize... More and more, that we as modern Christians need to think about, discuss, and understand sex well beyond the surface of what so many of us seem content to float upon. We need to dive deep into the substance of what sex is, why it was created, who it was created by, and what He created it for. Sex was designed by God. God made sex. God loves sex. God blesses sex. But not only did God design sex, God designated sex. And boy, do we hate that. For one man and one woman forever within the framework of marriage, sex is intended for the mutual pleasure and intimacy, vulnerability and encouragement of each spouse, husband and wife in the context of a lifelong, self-denying, other-serving union a union that's designed to reflect the relationship that God intends to have with all of us in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And in addition, I think we need to own our heterosexual hypocrisy as it relates to sexual sin, which so easily dismisses the vast majority of heterosexual sin in favor of bullying homosexual sin. To that end, I also think we need to think long and hard about apologizing to the homosexual community for how we've conducted ourselves towards them, to the tone and surface level content of our conversations, and our willingness to judge them by a standard that we do not keep ourselves. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. And that applies to heterosexual sin as much as, if not more than, all the attention that we spend on homosexual sin. Floating on the surface of the substance of sexuality is no longer an option, not if we expect our culture to sustain in the face of persecution and an ever-changing world. I know that all of this is heavy, and some of you guys look like you've been beat down into your seat. I get that, so let me bring us uh, full circle. Gospel. I want to reiterate my concern that most of evangelical Christianity floats on the surface of a vast ocean of substance. And while seeking substance takes time and discipline and commitment, substance is exactly what has been gifted to us. You see, the gospel tells us that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God and that he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The gospel doesn't only tell us that God became man, but that he became man for a purpose, to restore to man the substance That we have all forfeited in our disobedience. The Lord Jesus was entirely man, and in his humanity, he lived a life that was perfect, the life that you should live, the life that I should live, that none of us live. He died a common criminal's death, crucified on a Roman torture device, a sinner's death, that I should die, that you should die, that none of us have to die. Because by Christ's death, he offers us life. Some of his more famous words in John 10 go like this. I've come that you may have life. There's no more substance than life. Jesus offers holistic, complete, comprehensive life participation in the life of God, which is the substance of all of eternity. If you've never believed in the Lord Jesus, I encourage you even now to believe in him. God loves you. He adores you. He's priced you and valued you at the cost of the life and death of his son. He's lived and died in your place that you may have life. And if you've believed, whether for weeks, months, or years now, I must ask you, are you floating on the surface of substance which Christ offers you? If you've staked your eternity on who Jesus is and what Jesus done, does Christ dictate your day to day? Does his way his teaching his life dictate your understanding of and participation in your work and your hobbies? Your finances and your politics, how you use your time, how you use your body, who you are in your family? Does he dictate the reality of the terms of your marriage? How you understand and participate in sex is Christ your culture. He can be, he intends to be for each of us individualistic Americans, but also for the collection of us who believe, which is his church, his bride, his body. If we're betting our eternity on Christ, we better bet all of today on him as well. Will you pray with me? Lord, we live in a time, an era, and a place where we long for distraction, where the truth has been drowned out in a sea of irrelevancies. And so, anytime any kind of truth comes close to us, whether it's about the person that we voted for, or where we get our fast food, or what's going on, and Our own hearts, anytime truth comes close to us, I think we duck it and evade it and run from it with all that we have. Simultaneously, Jesus, you say that uh, you are the way and the truth and the life, and that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, in the chaos of the modern life, God, and the consistency of all of the change and the inundation of information that relentlessly comes at us, allow us to see grab onto, believe in, build our lives on the rock of Christ who is consistent and unchanging. That's a process. Allow us to be graceful with ourselves as we engage that process. Allow us to be graceful with others as we, they engage that process. Uh, and do this for your glory and our good. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, Thank you again for tuning in to the City Church Evansville podcast. As a reminder, the full notes for this sermon, as well as our associated City Life Group discussion guide, can be found in the sermons tab in our City Church Evansville app. I'll look forward to next week's edition to the Surface and Substance series, and I'd encourage you to join us here at 314 Market Street in downtown Evansville at 9, 15, or 11 a.m.